Howdy, and welcome to another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I'm your host, Daniel Dolphin. My guest this morning is Miss Amy Skinner. Amy is a clinician and dark humor aficionado and fellow heretic. She is the author of two books, To Catch a Horse and The Middle Road. She has a classical dressage background, but she does understand feel. She's a military brat and a middle child and an ever curious student of the horse. She believes in training through relaxation to promote softness and balance. She has a YouTube channel and a Facebook presence that makes me feel very lazy. She is a self-described newbie who only won a blue ribbon one time out of a class of one, and she has studied extensively under Teresa Doherty and Brent Graff. Amy, how are you this morning? I'm good. Your bio makes me sound really good. Like, Well, that, that's the whole point. One and blue I, ribbon. That's awesome. <laughs> I apologize for being late this morning. I, I finished off the rest of the eggnog we had last night, and I've spent about an hour regretting my life choices this morning. So <laughs> sorry I'm a few minutes late. But uh, anyway. Well, we always start off the podcast with the lightning round short answer questions. So these are the icebreakers. Are you ready? I'm ready. I got to say, this is the only podcast that I have ever been nervous for. Oh, these no. questions. This quite like I had to study on myself. Like, what books do I like? What if I forget? No, don't worry about that. There's nothing right or wrong. So what is your favorite way to relax? Oh, gosh. I, I, like, I like to watch the same show or movie every day. At the end of the, the day, I get a glass of wine and I watch the same show and just space out, which I, I enjoy for its predictability. I can absolutely relate to that. Yep. Morning or evening? Well, I have a two-year-old, so they're both hell on earth. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm allowed to say, I'm allowed to say that because <laughs> uh, you have kids. So um, I like the middle of the day. <laughs> Bay when she's court. napping yeah nap time is favorite time <laughs> i gotta understand <laughs> mine don't nap anymore so uh we never have quiet time now it's when they go to school but then they get home oh yeah you have, you have homework my 15 year old goes to a charter school that's a stem academy he is regularly doing homework from the time he gets home to like 10 o'clock at night it is and that's I crazy that homework in college it's absurd but. that is crazy okay uh bay or sorrel well, I somehow ended up with like a billion bays. So I, I've grown fond of that color, but I've always been kind of a sorrel, sorrel lover. Does pineapple belong on pizza? Oh, no, that's just offensive. Okay. Do you like <laughs> a big crust on your pizza where like there's no sauce for the outer two inches or do you like sauce right up to the edge? I like a big fluffy crust and I like to dip it in sauce. What is your pet peeve? Well, I have a lot. I'm a really pleasant person that hates everything. <laughs> this thing that happens to me probably every day has grown to be one of my biggest pet peeves. And that is when people talk in a lesson so much that I can barely get a word in. Where there's this, this narration that is hard to break through and I have to interrupt them to teach. Talk, you could just put it, talking is my pet peeve. It, people just shouldn't do it. 
I, once again, I, I certainly relate to that. I wish everyone had like an allotment that in, in today, you can only use this many <laughs> words. So use them carefully and only say things that actually need to be said rather than just narrating, oh, I'm walking to the grocery store right now. I, I mean, the story is fine if it describes the information that I need to know. But if it's like, well, I was born in 1972 and it all started from there. And it's just like, please let me, please let me instruct you. <laughs> Favorite beverage? Well, coffee in the morning. And then we just pass the torch on to the wine. Okay. And then every once in a while, I'll drink some water when I start feeling really bad. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Something unexpected about you. Okay. Um, what's unexpected about me? I mean, I expect it all. I am a huge lover of rap and hip hop. That's probably unexpected for a milk toast person. I, I didn't see that coming. So yeah, I love I love good old 90s hip hop. Well, the older stuff's a little, yeah, the stuff these days. Uh, I think it's really funny to have one of those um, Instagram TikTok trends of a song that's sung in Russian and nobody realized it was Russian because we can't understand any of that stuff anyway. And then there was a whole thing of informing that in Russian it means this and it's it's a terrible uh, song. And I found that hilarious. Yeah, uh, I, I am like a big peace, love, harmony kind of a person, but I like songs about like crime and murder. I don't know what my problem is. <laughs> 90s hip-hop is my thing <laughs> what superpower would you choose invisibility hands down go to the grocery store disappear thoughts or feelings what about thoughts about feelings feelings about thoughts <laughs> okay <laughs> so you hide your feelings with humor all right that's very telling all right. <laughs> Oh. I mean, we have this middle child problem in common, so I'm sure that there's a whole lot to unpack there. Yes. Uh, the best people, the best senses of humor always belong to middle children. No question there. Overlooked, underloved. Decisive or indecisive? Decisive. That's a question that exists because of Maddie, by the way. Every question she was on the fence, him hawing, and, and so I decided <laughs> we'd put that one in there for her. Do you have a favorite piece of tack or horse-related tool? I am a big whip fan. <laughs> okay. I can't, I can't do this. Um, I, I really like a snaffle bit. And I like a good soft hackamore. Favorite book or movie? I probably watch The Lord of the Rings every day. So... It's at least on in the background while I sleep. You have a favorite one of us, uh, you know, Twin Towers, Return of the King, which. The Two Towers is my favorite. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that one's got the coolest action stuff in it. I like. And then the, I, I guess. Yeah, I could. When the ants attack the tower is hands down the high point of the whole movie for me. It's all CGI. It's super cool. Yeah, that's the. Yeah, it's super cool. Did you read um, the I think my chance? You know, uh, I did when I was a kid, um, or I guess my, my parents read them to us, but I probably need to read them again because it's been so long. I think that's the only series where I have liked the movie more than the book. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm afraid of because I'm such a fan of the movies that I'll read the books and, and not reread the books, I guess, and not like yeah. it as much. 
the books have some good parts in them, but they've got some lulls that you just have to push through too. Yeah, and I think my favorite book is Catch-22. That might be the best book ever written, in my opinion. Guilty pleasure. Putting my phone down and walking away when I'm on the phone with somebody who is talking for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm sensing this is going to become a short interview. You're going to get sick of talking. <laughs> what is your favorite dinosaur? See, I think I like the Velociraptor. I'm not like a real educated dinosaur person. And dinosaurs have changed so much since I was a kid, you know, information about them and stuff. But I think I'm a raptor fan. <laughs> Here's a, a fun fact for you. I, my youngest is a dinosaur fan, so I get a lot of dinosaur trivia. The first fossils were not discovered and recognized until after George Washington died. That's how wow. old dinosaurs. So founding fathers of the United States of America did not know that dinosaurs existed. How about that? That is crazy. And have you ever had a UFO encounter? Yes, but I can't talk about it. It's a sore subject. <laughs> a sore subject. We shouldn't probe <laughs> it anymore. All right. <laughs> no, I can't say that I have. Um, I've had a lot of weird stuff happen in my life, but but I can't say that I've ever had a UFO experience, which makes me feel really boring after listening to all the interviews that you've given. Everyone's like, oh, definitely, definitely have had a UFO experience. And I, I think it's about 50-50, and that actually has surprised me. I, 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 did, yeah. I don't know. I wouldn't have thought many people would have admitted to it. Maybe it's becoming hipper or, or whatever, but. Well, aliens, wherever you are, I'm ready. Yep. And you think like probably all of the people that live in cities where there's all this light pollution, they can't see the sky anyway. So it's really only like yeah. half of the people that, that could actually see the sky enough to, to witness something like that. So Yeah. Okay. So my first question for you is, Give us the 30,000 foot view of who you are and what you do and all of that good stuff. Aren't I supposed to win a prize though? Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. You are right. And I got to award you points. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you 132 points, which would entitle you to either a compliment or an awkward silence, your choice. I'll take the awkward silence. <laughs> All right. that I, was good i enjoyed that i think everybody is, is shocked that that's the one you chose there no compliments please <laughs> all right Thirty thousand foot view of what who i do who, who yeah, i am and what i do in the horse world and just sort of what what your what your deal is what what makes you you and your program your program and and all what exactly stuff. is my problem? Yeah, nothing doesn't have to be super detailed. Some there was somebody that mistook it for the 30-second uh deal. So I mean you can you can go on a little bit here. So well, in a nutshell, I do what's called postural rehabilitation. So horses got a physical issue, movement problem. I basically assess it, take it all apart, put it back together. And um you can think of it kind of like PT, I guess. Uh, I also do like behavioral modification stuff. So I always call it like the, my farm's full of the crypts and the bloods, you know, <laughs> like the. <laughs> so whatever, whatever your problem barn. is, that's whatever. What's that? You have the blue barn and the red barn. 
That's right. And they, they should never interact. It's bad when they do. No, that's basically what I do. I start young horses and do problem stuff. Well, let me ask you this. Since, since you brought that up and you've watched the bit DVD and all. The, I haven't since, finished it, so don't ask me any square, scary questions. No, this was in the beginning. I know you've, okay. you've uh, watched. So the, the part where I talk about the, the hyperflexion between the second and third vertebra, is that something that you see a lot? Did that hit home with you or not so much? Ooh, yeah, um, this is going to this is going to really probably make me unpopular, but I feel you make me feel safe to upset people. So <laughs> there's a lot of I'm writing that similarities. Down. <laughs> I might go in my, my bio. Okay. Okay, yeah. uh, a lot of the Western stuff and the dressage stuff is showing up in the same kind of issue. Badly done. Like I want to make that clear. It's badly done. Um, but a lot of, a lot of uh, hyperflexion of the neck is happening in both those worlds. And so I probably rehab a good amount of both of those kinds of horses over bending the neck, bending it too much to the side, bending it too much toward the chest. A lot of that soft feel stuff gone wrong has turned into just behind the bit all the time. Uh, and you end up with this really hyper, hyper mobile neck and really, really tight back and crazy wobbly hindquarters. And then in the dressage world, you just have this brick of a horse with this overflexed neck and you get these huge overdeveloped ropey muscles on the sides of their neck. And they, they have a lot of similarities. They come out a little bit different, but it's a hot mess. It's a total rehab. I don't think I could agree with anything you said more. Um, I kind of feel like the Western pleasure horse world, someone 25 years ago watched a video and discovered long and low. And all of a sudden, boom. And in the reigning world, someone learned what the neutral ligament is. And boom, <laughs> you know, it, it's like like these fads hit. Someone learned something and it just, it, it takes stuff to an extreme Ugh. in a hurry. My take yeah. on it. Yeah. yeah, I probably get fired by dressage people at least once a week because I won't lunge their horse inside reins or I start talking about what collection is not. And if they can't give their rein up like a half inch, I know I'm going to get fired pretty quick. And like I said, I have one blue ribbon as my claim to fame. So I have no like <laughs> actual authority. And I have this terrible, I have this terrible nature about me that the fancier the barn is like, if it's got a chandelier, I'm showing up in my blue jeans and a baseball cap, like at a spite. Like I will, I will not be that person showing up in the little beret and breeches and dance code clogs to look apart because I'm just a hillbilly by nature. So my favorite is when I show up and they're like, who the hell are you? And I'm like, I'm your teacher, man. <laughs> I, I like it. There's Check, more, please. To, more to things than, than appearance. That's right. You should judge someone by what their horses look like not by what they look like. Yeah. And they might be dressed to the nines and, and have a beautiful, expensive imported horse. But if that horse has got the deadest eye I've ever seen and muscles bulging out where they shouldn't be bulging. I mean, we've got a, a problem of priorities. Again, I, I couldn't agree more with that. So, so in some of this postural rehabilitation, give us an example of, or two of, you know, a common a diagnosis would be the wrong word, but a, a common problem that you come across on how you address rehabilitating that horse and bringing back some balance and some softness and all that good stuff to the force. 
Do you mean like what's a what's a typical exercise I might do or what's a typical postural problem? Both. Yeah, the, the problem and the solution, I guess. Just a generic sort of a... Well, I'd say almost everywhere across the board, we've got tight shoulders and drop backs. Almost across the board, discipline-wide. Although in some dressage horses that are bred now, you've got hypermobility in the shoulders, which is kind of a weird problem. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen Totalaz with that like Hitler March front leg. That that kind of breeding is, is not something I see that often because those kinds of people with lots of money and big expensive horses aren't typically seeking me out. But the... I, I would say across the board, necks are jammed up, shoulders are tight, backs are dropped. Something is blocked and isn't going forward. So usually what I do is I kind of look at the body and think of a split down the middle. If you follow the spine and think how's the right side versus the left side. And then I cross the body into quarters, like from ear to opposite hind leg and say, how is that diagonal balance going? Um, and usually when you look at a horse, if you could look at them, from above an aerial view, you would see that they always have a split diagonal at that point. So like left front and right hind are doing different amounts of work, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So yeah. like a, a, that, that horse might be falling in on the left shoulder and swinging the right hind out, something like that. So, you know, a really simple example of some corrective exercise would be taking the horse over poles on a straight line because the pole is going to create the same amount of work out of all four legs. Okay. And it's basically going to, teach them how to, how to loosen muscles that have tightened through compensation. So, so would you say that most of those imbalance sort of issues are muscular and weakness in nature, or are they more injury type things where there actually is a specific thing we're dealing with here, or is it more improper riding? Someone didn't notice something and took it to the nth degree and, and really snowballed it or, or what? I mean, if you, if you pull a horse out of a field, who's never been touched by anybody and you get ready to start him, he's going to have some, he's going to be on the forehand. He's going to be weak in the hind legs just by nature. That's how a horse is made. But I think, I think the problem comes when people pull that horse out and start getting ready to ride him, plop the saddle on, do the yeehaw stuff and start getting up the levels. We'll, we'll say in whatever discipline they ride and they don't realize that those imbalances are kind of snowballing. Um, and the horse is trying to figure out how to carry a rider the best they can while the rider's trying to go about doing whatever movements they want the horse to do. And so they figure out how to carry the, the rider onto one side specifically a little bit more, just that's how everybody works. And so that side will get stronger and tighter and then the, something else will get weaker and weaker. And so they get into really dysfunctional patterns over time. So I would say, I would say most of it is riding related and I, I would attribute most of the injuries to poor riding too. Whether I can link that directly or not is just my best guess, you know, because I think, especially in the dressage world, a lot of ligament, ligament and tendon injuries are completely preventable. Same with jumpers, probably rainers too. It's just, it's just excess wear and tear that they should not undergo. I have often kind of thought if, if we could come up with some sort of a rig that, that came basically out of the back of the saddle, maybe seven or eight feet, and you put a camera on that, and instead of watching what your hands are doing, what your legs are doing, how the horses respond, if someone just had to watch what their pelvis really did and how off they were constantly on the right hip or something like that for 30 minutes, I think it would be eye-opening to like 80% of the people <laughs> riding around yeah. who don't have any idea how often they're sitting candid this way or, or whatever and they're not 
square in the middle of the horse. Um, yeah, it'd probably be eye-opening. Well, I went through your YouTube channel, and I have to say I found some some uh, very interesting videos. I think, I think you have a unique perspective in that you're not necessarily covering the same topics everyone else is covering. Uh, and when you do, you, you have an interesting take on it. So I, one, one I liked in particular was that you have a video on how to pet a horse. And there's several of those out there. And I have to say, I would probably rather watch paint dry than watch most of those videos, but I really enjoyed yours. Uh, you compared petting a horse to developing a cue and that it should have a purpose and an outcome just like any other interaction. Really, it seems like you look at petting a horse as groundwork. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because I really thought that was a pretty, pretty interesting and unique take on it. Well, I have to start out by saying that I have made some people mad in my time, but there's a couple topics that have made people hate me the most. And that's one of them. And that's a source of contention probably every day on my farm, because I have a rule that people are not allowed to touch my horses. I mean, it is like a, a strict do not put your hand over the fence and put your hand on that horse's face rule. And I've probably had more people mad at me over that than anything else. Uh, and the reason that I'm so particular about that is because every touch has a meaning, you know, and, and part of riding in lightness to me is not erasing the natural lightness of the horse. And so if you, if you're petting the horse carelessly and rubbing on their face and getting them pushing into your hand and kind of pushing you around, like you see a lot of times that careless petting creates not only tension in the pole and the neck, for, you know, postural development, you've already junked up the horse's neck there. You're teaching them to cross through drive lines. You know, if I, if I'm going to move a horse with the least pressure possible, I want those drive lines to be really clear. You know, so if I step toward a horse, that horse would be able to move away. If I step back, that horse would be able to move toward me. Those are natural in a horse until somebody blurs them. And so if you step into that drive line and erase it, then I have to go in and do a little bit more than I wanted to to get that horse to move. And two, you know, whenever you, when you, whenever you pet a horse, I'm looking for that to center the horse. So if I put my hand on the forehead of the horse, I don't want the horse to avoid or push. I want him to get soft right in the center of my hand. And I'm going to do that with my reins and my legs later on. And, and it's, it's all systematic development, one step at a time, and it all blends to the next thing. And so to me, part of using the least pressure possible means developing things in layers that make sense and build onto the next thing. So, and then if, you know, if my horse has lost his, his focus and he's looking off to the left, if I touch him on the right side of the neck, he's going to be able to swivel an ear that way. But if all I do is, is just carelessly pet, that's not going to mean a whole lot to him. Basically desensitize the horse to something. To touch. That, yeah. yeah. Should be pretty important. And, and people get upset because they're like, well, you don't love your horse and you don't want to reward him and pet him. That's not the case at all. I love my horse so much. I want to be able to reward him. And if you touch him too much, I won't be able to. I, I like that a lot. I, that's one of those things I've even seen. I'll say this is one of my pet peeves since you're a dressage person. I've watched tons of interviews of Olympic level riders and so forth. And they're sitting there with this $700,000 horse and a snaffle bit and they're holding the reins eight inches under his chin and they're, they're talking to him and the horse is whacking them in the head and all over the place. And there's, there's no connection between them whatsoever. At this point, the horse's attention is not on the person. They're, they're in the bubble. And, and, and yet 
they've got contact on the bit the whole time. Right. Sitting there thinking, you're a world-class rider. How do you not recognize the damage you're doing right now and showing everyone else? I mean, it just, it blows my mind. So well, it's kind of a running joke that I have with my husband because he can't stand it either. But I eat all these pictures of like, congratulations, so-and-so just purchased their new imported fluffy McFlufferson's son from you know, Austria and the picture is of this smiling person with this horse who's super freaked out, head is like 10 hundred feet in the air, lights of his eyes bulging, he's got a chain pulled tight and he's like about to run the person over and they're like, this is my new horse, you know? It's just like complete obliviousness to the connection, the, the details that make up a good connection. And, and to me, that's part of why you have to ride with so much leg and contact because all of the time your horse is going into those lines and you're having to there's nothing that makes a, a worse connection than having a horse go into pressure all the time with no release. One of the things I'm, I guess, currently, I, I have a mind that likes to work on abstract sort of things and make sense, like the bit project. That was a, mm-hmm. a way bigger ball of string to unwind than most people realize. Something I'm working on now is body language. And I, I am very much a realist, and I'm always trying to get people to deal with the actual horse that's standing beside them and not the mythical creature in their mind that that this flesh and blood animal is just a symbol of really and and part of that that i thought was really good with with your petting thing is that in the horse's body language system there are very few language signals or touches that are in a rewarding pleasant sort of a way they have the, where they mutually bite at the neck right above the withers and, and there are a few other little touches but i mean like there's three four things you could decode in body language that is friendly touch between horses um i, I broke this down i don't have the list anymore but i think i came up with 21 or 22 signs of threats or violence uh within the horse's body language code so there's four times as many signs in the horse's repertoire of language to threaten violence as there are to offer friendship and i don't think a lot of people really understand that they want to think of this majestic beautiful creature but they don't (laughs) take into account the reality that this this thing could be pretty violent too you know if if you turn uh mustang stallions they have to be careful about that if you bring a new stallion into a herd the first thing you'll do is go kill all the foals I'm not joking about calling my place like filled with the crypts and the bloods. I get a lot of horses that were gelded late and that might be some of the most close to predatory behavior you'll ever see. I mean, I've got horses that will, will actively kill each other in cold blood. That's, you know, I love them, but but we got to be realistic about what they are and and what they aren't. Uh, I'm sometimes surprised more people aren't killed by (laughs) by horses the way they treat them and the lack of respect that they they show them yeah me too so are there any like like what that that video on petting a horse really showed me is that you have a a, a knack and some of the things you've written that i have read you really do seem to be good at taking and i don't mean this to sound condescending but but some of the more mundane things that we might do and then expanding them breaking them down and and kind of making them make a whole lot more sense and explaining why they're important. Are there any other, uh, those types of things you'd like to talk about? 
Well, I can talk about all of them. I mean, I'm a big picture person. So all of those details are the work to me. And, you know, like how you, how you halter them, how you lead them, how their ground manners are, how you saddle them, how you pick their feet. I mean, all of those things. I mean, it's, it's, it's as nitpicky as, you know, if you're picking your horse's feet and the horse jerks the foot away from you, that, that shoulder is going to have less mobility in the ride. I mean, it is, it's probably not going to ruin your horse. No, but that stuff snowballs. And, you know, one of the biggest problems I see with the dressage world is they focus so much on the tricks and the riding and not at all on the details. You know, the horses are swishing their tail while you cinch them up really fast and they're shoving the bridle over their head and they're just lunging the crazies out of them before they get on and they don't put care into the details of their life and the quality of handling. They're just getting on for the ride, you know, and, and that will deteriorate the quality of your rides. And I think a big problem in the dressage world is having to band-aid all of these things together, just like you know, hawk injections, stifle injections, behavioral stuff like using a chain. I mean, you look at, at the end of a dressage show, and, and I know I'm like shitting on dressage a lot because I love the sport. But but you walk to the end of a dressage show and it's time to load all those horses up. And these are like national champions and they've got to pull out the broom and do the human chain of arms to push that horse into the trailer. And that's just that's a travesty. I mean, that's, that's pathetic is what it is. If you, if you don't have even the basics of horsemanship, how on earth are you showing upper levels? I remember there was a man I worked for in college and he had a daughter. Uh, she and her husband both, both worked for the AQHA and she had a big fancy Western pleasure horse, like a guaranteed top 10 in the world every year, sort of a, a horse. And she came through for a visit and I hadn't met her before and she pulls up in the driveway and she unloads the horse and I was going to just take it to the barn and pop it in a stall and I mean this horse has been hauled every show you can imagine the biggest ones there are for years and years and years the 200 feet I had to walk to the barn was an adventure let me tell you I mean it was it was nothing I'm sitting there going like how in the hell is this thing the horse they've been describing to me so it's not just dressage that's yeah of all of that stuff but i i wholeheartedly agree i mean it, it seems like people put the cart before the horse they, they get so worried about the specific part that they miss the just the basic basic foundational type things that every single horse should be able to accomplish being tied having their feet handled loading in a trailer i mean don't get me started on being tied it's a it's a rare skill i think that a horse can tie without pulling the barn down and I've just, I've just grown to not expect horses to tie. And it's, you know, if I'm teaching a clinic, it's something that I am like on hyper vigilance for is horses that are tied or cross tied anywhere or people tying in the trailer before they close the ramp. I mean, I am on like wreck lookout probably the entire time. <laughs> like I cannot go to the bathroom or relax without looking around the corner to see if that horse is tied is going to be tied to something sturdy and not pull it down. Yeah. Well, we have come to our commercial break for our sponsor for this episode. So anytime I have a, a lady on, I try to have a, a female oriented sponsor. And I think we got a good one for you here, Amy. So that's very PC of you. Thank you. <laughs> this episode, well, just hold on. It won't last for long. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Long Piers Eatery. Ladies, you've endured a lunch or two with your husband or boyfriend at Hooters or Twin Peaks. 
Now it's your turn. At Long Piers, you'll be served by a shirtless Viking. Our Vikings are always at least six foot two and must keep to a strict skin and cuticle care regime. They came in your choice of tall, dark, and hairy chested or tall, blonde, and waxed. Enjoy a glass of wine with our complimentary heated blankets and soft slippers. Be visually entertained by our playful cats who have the run of the place or our decorating staff who switch the decor hourly, or simply watch your significant other as he does his best to not make eye contact with your Viking waiter. Men get white wine half off on Wednesday and red wine half off on Friday with an improving nod from you to your Viking that he listened to all of the details of your week without offering helpful and pragmatic <laughs> solutions to your problems. He'll also get a free dessert if he manages to follow the ever-changing people throughout your stories that the pronoun she revolvingly refers to. Every salad comes with a complimentary bunch of French fries that he cannot touch and a to-go cup that we fully intend you to drink 10% of and then leave in your husband's cup holder. Long Piers Eatery, made for women and where you can order a man to make you a sandwich. You can always find us between Hobby Lobby and a way overpriced coffee shop that has no understanding of how to represent cup sizes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's um, just a million dollar idea right there. <laughs> <laughs> Although I could do without the, the cuticle thing. Oh, well, stereotypes. You know. <laughs> Who wants a Viking with dirty fingernails? I mean, wow. I can't deal with a guy who's got cleaner nails than me. That's just a rule. Uh, Although that that is a hard by high bar because my nails are filthy. So I figure all people are different flavors of ice cream. Some people like vanilla, some people like Rocky Road. So we kind of touched on this a little bit already, but what would you say are the most common postural issues that you deal with? You you mentioned jammed up shoulders a little bit. Is there, you know, like three things? that you just see all the time. You also mentioned hollow backs, I guess. So talk, talk a little, how about this? This is one of those things since you're, since you're here to represent the entire dressage world. Um, oh boy. they might've wanted to pick somebody better. <laughs> nah, you got to wouldn't expose the bad things that they do. <laughs> one of the things I think that dressage does a poor job of, is the, the descriptive terms that they use about the back and what they're looking for, but it's all very abstract. Like I kind of feel like there's almost a, a cost of ownership. You have to spend 30 years figuring out what the hell they mean. And everybody does it. Everybody's sitting there not knowing what this clinician's talking about, but nobody will admit that they don't know what through the back means or, or whatever. And so like you have to just spend X number of dollars and years figuring it out before you get to play in the club. So so tell us about the horse's back in dressage. Oh boy. Okay. So go to any barn across the world and some instructor is saying stuff like push from behind, lift his back, get him around. Those are super vague, really terrible terms to describe what in actuality should be happening. And, and you know, just to, to, to leave the back for a second and think of the hind end, this is actually a big problem in dressage today, thinking about pushing from behind. Pushing is what a cart horse does, like a, a plow horse. They push with their hind feet. Pushing is, is not at all desirable. You want carry. So you want the hindquarters to lower instead of push. So 
to lower, they have to have equal flexion in the joints of both hind legs. So that means the, the hip stifle hawk and pastern all go down and up at the same rate between the right hind and the left hind. Have I seen a horse that does that in, in any of these barns? Probably not. And, and actually just to, to take a quick little side note, I, I would say that I see probably 75% of horses twist one of their hind legs more than the other. So their hawks actually rotate in because they've got weak stifles. And, and even in upper level horses, you see a hind leg that rotates out. So the, the hoof goes out and the hawk goes in. And if you think about doing a squat yourself, you're supposed to go down and up equally with both your legs. And it's your quads and your hamstrings, and your glutes, and all those muscles in your legs that support the joints. If you've got one leg that's weaker than the other, your knee is going to swing to the outside. And the knee joint, which is the same as the horse's stifle, is not supposed to twist. So if you have day in, day out twisting of your stifle and your hock is taking extra concussion, you're going to need to inject that at some point to maintain your horse's ability to, to keep going. Um, so that's a big problem. So if you don't, if you don't have both hind legs going down and up the same, and you've got one twisting, you're wearing out the joints. So anyway, back to the back. So the, the, the back, when people think of the horse lifting the back, they're often trying to achieve lift of the back through a static feeling, like where they squeeze with their legs to squeeze it up and hold it there. And what you actually want the back to do is to allow energy to go through forward. So the hindquarters lowering are where, you know, the, the strength is sort of coming from the carrying power of the hind legs. And then that motion of the horse propelling itself forward carries through the back out the nose of the horse, which is where you get that round appearance in the front end of the horse. So the arching of the neck is actually made possible by lowering the hindquarters and the whole top line coming unlocked. So it isn't at all possible to lift the back by squeezing with your leg and restraining with your hand. That's just a huge misconception um, because that's not how muscles work. The, the back needs to just be free because the whole top line works in a unit, basically. All the muscles kind of connect into each other. And so if the back is tightened by restraining or grinding or squeezing or anything like that, there's no possible way for the horse to to use their back effectively. So I, you know, I think of it working over the back is a better term because you want the energy to flow over the back, but it isn't something like lifting and holding because that's a static position. And when it, it actually needs to move like a, almost like a, like a waterbed, I guess, I don't know what the best analogy is, but it's got to have some movement to it. Mm -hmm. I often think about probably 10 years ago, I started becoming very conscious of the loin of the horse. Um, so the lumbar vertebra area, basically. And I think of it as the hind quarter is the engine and everybody's coming, you know, that's your powerhouse and all. But if that's true, the loin is the transmission. Um, mm -hmm. it, is, it is what allows. And if the loin isn't working correctly or if it's weak or if it's sore, then there's no way that, that any of the rest of it is, is going to work. And I, I really kind of think of it, those vertebra really don't have, uh, like if you, if you look at the, the biomechanics, each of the lumbar vertebra only has about one degree of movement. in. So, so maxing out the, the up and down movement or left and right movement of the loin, the horse hasn't actually moved all that much. Mm -hmm. But I think of it kind of like a coiled spring. So you, even though there isn't a lot of movement there, there's a tremendous amount of power 
there that should be uh, forcing things forward. And a lot of that comes with the way people ride. If you're if you're bouncing on that line and you've got that horse a little tender and sort of flinching from you back there, then no way in hell is he going to use it to your advantage somewhere down yeah. the road, you know. Um, yeah. And, and if you're riding with this really locked, like in the dressage world, I, I would say like, it's really rare to find dressage training that is not teaching people to lock their legs on the horse through the duration of the ride. And if you are locking your leg onto the horse, you're locking up your hip. And so the horse's back can't move under your hip effectively. So you are locking the back and that's why you're stuck in this cycle of constantly driving this horse with this leg. I guess since we're picking on dressage, one of the things that always strikes me about it, and I would say that to me, there is a, there's a pretty significant distinction between classical dressage and I don't know what you would call it, but, but show dressage these mm-hmm. days. I mean, classical dressage, I don't really have any, any issues with. That's where I think of Nuno Oliveira and that kind of stuff. We talked about him a lot. And I mean, you can see videos on YouTube of him with a cigar in one hand doing pee off with the horse with slack reins riding one handed. To me, the concept of two hands on the reins constantly is, is a new concept that I don't think that was the norm 60 or 70 years ago, or at least it wasn't always part of it. I think, I think it should, there's, there's a diverged route there between the vaqueros and the dressage people, but, but they had a common ancestor at some point, you know? And, and I think yeah. uh, if we look at the, the military aspects of dressage and all, I mean, you, you had to have a sword, you had to have a shield. You, you did not have two hands for the reins at, at every point in time. And a lot of the, the over contact that we see leads to that braced horse, which at best is a distraction and at worst mm-hmm. is, you know, physical problems down the road. And, and it just strikes me, you could, you could talk to any dressage rider that's guilty of all of this stuff. And you would ask them, what are the foundational tenets of dressage? And they would say things like bringing out the natural gates of the horse and acceptance of the contact from the bit. And then you watch them ride and they've got a horse that's braced and moving in unnatural ways all over the place and is showing me body language signs that they absolutely do not accept this bit. And I'm often struck by the disconnect there of, you know, we have this ideal of this set of goals that we're working towards, but we seem to have blinders on that, that we're not aiming in that direction in any way, shape and form with the actual actions that we are doing when we're riding the horse. So anyway, my yeah, point. I think, I think there's just not enough good representation of what dressage in, in lightness looks like. I mean, there's certainly really good people out there doing really good work, but, but by and large, it's harder to find in your average, you know, if you're your average dressage amateur going to a dressage barn is going to find some form of restraint gear, side reins, draw reins, more leg, more hand, get him to accept the contact, get him more round. Things like that are going to be said before you can move on. So basically your head, your horse should just never put his head up before we can move on to doing the tricks. And then we can go to a show. And I, I think the original purpose of dressage was lost. And I think of dressage as a therapeutic tool. It's there to improve the life quality of my horse. If I can get to a show and win a blue ribbon, that's great. But, you know, I haven't put a lot of emphasis on that just because I'm doing rehabs most of the time. But I, I don't think I don't think classical dressage and competition can't exist together. I just think it's harder to find. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and let me be clear, like I, I find the same thing in the Western world. I'm just I'm just picking on Dressage because you're here. Like I don't I don't think if you go watch a reigning futurity and then you read the rule book that oh, you yeah. find a lot of similarities. I mean it, I mean we could pick on any discipline yeah. for a long time. In fact, I'd be more than happy to. <laughs> I'm just such a delightful person. I just love <laughs> to hate stuff. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to change a couple of questions out of order here since we, we've kind of talked about some of the more advanced stuff. Let me, let me think of how I want to phrase this. So, so dressage is, is pretty famous for having these, these, uh, this pyramid-like set of levels that you go up to and collection is at the top of that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I you know, well, it's not, it's not like I'm a genius and I noticed this. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. A lot of people have noticed it, I'm sure. But as you get to a more advanced horse, you actually tend to lose the three beat low. And it becomes, as you get more into collection, it tends to be hind end, front end, where the diagonal pair breaks up and that, that hind leg acts first. And then we get the, the forehand. So, so a canner, I mean, we really have a, a four beat at the end of it as a gallop. When a horse is going, you know, like a race horse, they don't run in a three beat anymore. That diagonal pair breaks up. But then on the slower end, if we get really, really collected, we tend to break that up. And then kind of in the middle, what most people are doing, we have the true three beat loop. So does does that breaking up, is that a milestone sort of a thing for you that you view when a horse starts to do this? Or is it an, an indicator or of something or it's just normal stuff that happens? You know, I think that um, that question is highly up for debate, you know, because if you ask my teacher, she would say the three beat canner should never be broken into four beats. You should never get a four beat canner. How do you I think if you look then? you still should have a steady three beat? So it would be like one, two, three, pause, one, two, three, pause. Uh, and I think a lot of the pirouettes that are happening now are suspended for too long that they're actually getting to be four beats. But you could ask two, two dressage masters and get two different answers. So to be totally honest with you, I don't have a good answer because I still need to study into that. Yeah, there, for me, mechanic-wise, like a pirouette, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a three-beat pirouette. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but for me, it's still a unicorn. Uh, I think like yeah. it has to be a, a four-beat. And it's really what, what you're talking about, moment of suspension. Yes, some of those horses are almost rearing up and flopping over here and then rearing up a little bit mm -hmm. and flopping over here. And so that's sort of the extreme uh, end of that. But uh, there's another facet here. I don't know if this is something you're aware of. You've studied with Brent Graff, who's a, a you know Western sort of a guy. So in the, in the Western world, we have the spin, but there are actually two different spins. There's a trotting spin and a loping spin. Are you familiar with? that no you can um, you can fill me in on that so so what you're going to typically see in raining is a trotting spin which will be a very even cadence and it tends to be a a very level sort of a horse the vaqueros were more from the, the pirouette the dressage common roots back uh when and they tended to do a loping spin where the horse kept a, a very lopy type of a front end and it's a little bit hoppier so it's not quite as smooth and cadenced as the trotting spin. And it's also a bit slower. And it's one of those things that you almost never see 
anymore, at least not in competition. It used to be more with the rain cow horse uh, type stuff where they're still riding in hackable classes and, and spade bits. And I'm sure there are some guys that you still see there, but you don't, I don't, I don't see them in the top end anymore, I guess is, is what I'm saying. But anyway, that, that might be something for you to think about a little bit or, or chew on and, and in two years we'll have a talk about it or something. So, yeah, I think there's a, I don't know. Are you familiar with Doma Vaquera at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I think they're probably, I'm not super educated on it, but I think they're probably a nice intermediary between classical dressage and the Vaquero stuff because it's, it's got that same, it's got the original purpose to it, which is to be actually useful and, you know, creating a horse that works in lightness. And they, I think they've got the spin that you're talking about where it's really yes. slow. Well, it's, it's not really slow. That, so they would be sort of the high. Well, it's slower. Yeah. Pirouette is pretty slow. Theirs are going to be yeah, uh, quicker. And, and to be honest, like I've always found, th- this is one of those areas where I'm, I'm a little weird. I've always found a spin to be nothing more than a trick. It, it is a useless thing that we just arbitrarily decide like the inside hind leg pivot turn is an impractical turn to me an outside hind leg turn like what a cutting horse does or what would be a rollback in reining is in reality we would assume that if we're turning our goal is to stop going this way and to start going that way and we want to do that as quickly and efficiently as possible and right that is on the outside hind leg, not on the inside hind leg, uh, which also sets us up for a lead departure in the correct lead in that direction without throwing our hip uh, toward the direction of whatever we presumably were trying to get the hell away from. So that's one of those things I've kind of always had issue with. I have to, I have to do it. I have to live with it and I have to go show my horse spinning on the inside hind leg, but the whole time I'm gritting my teeth going, why are we doing this? <laughs> you know, who yeah. decided 500 years ago that this was something we we're supposed to do, and now we're still following through. Yeah, here. I mean, the original purpose of uh, working cattle and dressage are actually pretty similar because all of those movements are designed to be able to leave the movement on a straight line. Mm-hmm. So, if you're in a pirouette, you're supposed to be able to go forward immediately out of that. If you're in any lateral movement, you should be able to go on a straight line forward. So, if you're in a spin and you're actually working cattle. Imagine if you are on a rainer that has to stop and get his druthers together because he's dizzy and all discombobulated. The first step is going to be a disaster. Yeah. Well, when I look at a lot of raining horses, they they can't go forward without some recouping. Yeah, the, the spin is one. Of, like I've never seen a cow that could run around me in a circle that fast. It's yeah, not a, a really doesn't have a practical purpose. I mean, it's still cool. Hey. You know, you want to show your, show your horse Spanish walk, right? There's no practical purpose to that either, but it looks really cool. So I, I don't, I don't have any problem with it. But, <laughs> um, I guess if you need to, you know, you're you're here to pick up a bride you've never met. You need to make a big entrance to the gate, then maybe that's the purpose of it. <laughs> anyway, um, since we're kind of talking higher level stuff, and and I'm a bit guy, and I, you probably haven't gotten to this part of the DVD, and that's that's perfectly fine. I read one of your articles where you were discussing the double bridle and your fondness for it. So tell us about a double bridle. How does it work? What's the the concept there? What are you looking for? And and when would a horse, in your opinion, be ready for a double bridle? Well, I think it's important to preface by saying that I am by no means an expert in the double bridle. I have 
the only experience that I have writing in a double bridle is when I was at the Spanish writing school and here or there writing a few schoolmasters. So you need to take anything that I say from here on out with a grain of salt. That being said, when I was riding those horses in the double bridle, the feel of what you can get achieved with the double bridle is totally unparalleled. And I think one of the criticisms a lot of people have is like, you know, if you can get it in a snaffle bit, why would you need the double bridle? But the, the, the double bridle provides you a type of finesse and a type of subtle communication that you just can't get with just the snaffle. So the double bridles of Verdun and a Pelham, which is just like a, basically a little, little snaffle and a, and a leverage bit. And you have four reins, two reins in each hand. And so what you can do is really small, subtle communications on one ring or the other, depending on what you might be wanting to do. And you can create really beautiful, artful writing with it. So I'm a big fan of the double bridle simply because of the precision and the quality that you can get. But it's only for a horse who's very supple, very straight, very, very educated. Because if you put that in the mouth, like a, a, like is common, a lot of people are using that for control when they have too much horse in their hand. And so when they drive the horse forward, they need more restraint. And that's not at all an appropriate use of the double bridle. I've met very few horses who should have a double bridle on. Um, and I've never created one myself because I am mostly rehabbing all of my own personal horses or rehabs. And so it's like... I don't start at ground zero. I start at negative two bazillion and I'm working my way up to ground level. And eventually maybe I'll put out a horse that's finished. I would, I would love to, but, um, it's just not my current reality, but it, there's just no feel. And I'm sure you feel this way at the, about the spade bit and all the other thing, which I'm not educated about at all. Personally, well, my next question is if you had ever really ridden a bridle horse in a spade bit, but anyway. so I did ride one once. Um, and it was amazing. It was super amazing. I didn't know what I was doing. I probably screwed it up and the owner probably had to fix it after I got off. <laughs> but it was a really cool feeling. And it was kind of the same thing, like just so much finesse with so little, like you actually have this enormous responsibility in your hands to be very precise and careful about what you're doing and to really focus on your seat and your, your body first before you go to the, your hands. And when you go to the hands, you try to do everything on the Berdoon and use the palm for certain moments. But, um, like if I were to go from, so there's a, there's a movement called the zigzag and dressage where you're basically in a canter and you do a half past one direction, flying change, half past to the other direction, flying change. The amount of precise communication you can get that quickly with a double bridle is on parallel because you have like three seconds before you have to do a change again. You know, it's, everything is going it's all happening really, really fast, but it needs to be done very gracefully. So you can't like monkey your way through it and just hop on over to the other lead. Um, and a double bridle is, is a really artful tool to communicate the change of bend. It's, it's not a collection tool. It's not making your horse collect. It is a tool to use when your horse is collected. And personally, I'm a huge double bridle fan. I've got one hanging in my house and I just look at it every day. I'm like someday <laughs> I'm going to put this on my horse, but um, that day won't be anytime soon. And that's okay. Well, I like that. There was, there was something you touched on right there, uh, which was straightness and something set me off on the straightness train here about a week ago. I don't remember what it was exactly, but why don't we talk about that for a second? Cause I, I feel like that's one of the very misunderstood terms out there and i think i think there are a lot of people including uh, uh, professional trainers 
that are aiming for this term straightness and instead they are promoting stiffness. Yeah. I don't feel like the two words are synonymous in any way, shape or form. So, so what are your thoughts on straightness? Well, simply put straightness is just all four legs going the same direction at the same rate. That's an oversimplified answer. But if you really look into the details of straightness, you've got the same amount of length. The the body has the same length on the right side and the left side. So you've got some symmetrical muscular development and the same amount of carrying capacity in both hind legs. So what a lot of people in the English world are doing, I I actually think that the English and Western worlds are going about both of these things pretty different. Like, I think a lot of the Western world focuses on a lot of bending to create straightness. And a lot of the English world is focusing on just riding a horse straight forward with no bending. And I, with most things, like to think the answer somewhere in the middle. Because if you only go forward on straight lines and you're not attentive to rhythm and even lengths of step, it's really easy to just develop rigidity. And then you need more bridle and you need more leg and you need spurs and you need all this stuff. And then, you know, they're trying to achieve bend by squishing parts of the horse over and restraining it on the other side. You know, the inside leg to outside rein is like probably the most misunderstood thing taught frequently because most people are thinking of squishing the inside of the horse into a restraining outside rein. And that's a really rigid horse. But, you know, if you've got the other, if you've got the other end and you're folding your horse in half all the time, you're washing the hips all over the place and you're not going to be able to get even lengths of stride between front and back to the, if you do that to the extreme, you're going to have a really floppy wet noodle. And, you know, it's kind of discipline dependent. You've got the hunters that often get really rigid and really like a, just like a, it's like riding a rocket sometimes, you know, there's no bend in there whatsoever. And then some of the horsemanship horses that I get in it's like a wet noodle but you have to just it's like this crazy drunk horse that you constantly have to micromanage the front end to go on on a straight line so there's a nice middle ground in there somewhere I agree I tend to like my horses a little more on the noodly side than than the stiff side but one of my big milestones and there's there's an exercise I call the purposeful circle that we start out at every clinic but I want to be able to walk a horse in a, in a pre-purposeful moving out walk on about an eight or a 10 foot circle. And this is part of my, my daily warm up until that horse's back softens and his hind quarter isn't going around that circle, circle slightly untracked. And I think probably 95% of the horses in this world can't do that. Yeah, uh, And to me, that's something that should be like a goal for the first 30 days of riding a, a colt or something like that. And then should be maintained throughout that horse's life. Because kind of like, like what we had talked about before with side reins and the neck development, people tend to focus on lateral flexion just in the neck. And they kind of forget about the ribs and the, and the end of the loin and the transmission of, of everything. And they wind up with a horse that's very stiff and very weak in the back and, and doesn't readily yield. I've had in clinics, there, there's an epidemic of people doing groundwork exercises and untracking the hindquarters about 8 billion times. And then they come to a clinic and I promise you that person can't take their leads correctly. Uh, yeah, that, that horse has no, his hindquarter is just like a flag in the wind blowing around back there. <laughs> yeah. um, and and they, they have habituated an action that 
that wound up being quite harmful to their their purpose in the end because they overdid that. So okay. absolutely, I, I think that can be way overdone easily, um, and that's like I think the take home that most people when they go to a horsemanship clinic, if you've got the big cowboy hat type guy. You're going to go home and untrack the hindquarters 10 bazillion times and create this type of horse that is going to cross canter and not be able to walk a straight line and fold his neck all around. And, and um, you know, I've got my one blue ribbon standing up against this <laughs> big cowboy guru. Who am I to say your horse might be cross cantering, but um, <laughs> well, he says he says that's a good thing because it means he's using his hind end correctly. Right. So, OK, <laughs> just let that one go. What do I know? Well, does that does that satisfy you? I'm, I'm not sure if we got on a tangent and we talked about straightness fully. Is there anything else about straightness you want to say or? Well, you know, like if, if I've got a really rigid, say your hunter type or dressage type done poorly, who's never bent, the the work from then on is all going to be about letting that muscle open, and and it's probably scar tissued sometimes. You know, especially if you've got these horrible neck muscles from restraint that that's a that's a rehab for sure the foldy up noodly one that's just going to be helping that horse learn to straighten out and get his front legs and hind legs kind of on the same planet working out the same so if i had to rehab one i'd say the noodle is going to be a little bit easier if he's got his neck flop like if you've got the the chin drop in Every time you pick up your reins, that's going to be a little bit tougher, though. If I can't pick up my rein without folding that horse's neck to his chin or even just tucking it in and losing losing the front legs there, then the training aspect of that is going to be a little bit tougher than the physical rehab part because you've got an association with the reins that I don't particularly like. That's what, that is the, the hindquarter disengagement horse and the the too much vertical flexion horse, those are my top two least favorite things to have to fix that I wish you people would just figure, because you worked really hard to create this massive problem that now has to be fixed. Those those two yeah. things won't show up accidentally. Someone did a lot of work to create that problem. And you know, man, and I've been down that road and I did all that stuff. Um, and it was kind of humbling and eye-opening to look at my horse and realize that she was cross cantering and grumpier than ever and her back was worse than ever and to undo that is a lot more work than it is to do it but I did put a lot of effort into doing that because I thought I was making a really soft horse and I was excited to see a difference between the you know strong dressage contact and the lightness of the soft feel type of a work so no judgments from me for anyone that's doing that but for the love of god please stop <laughs> Up today you still have time <laughs> this next question is is going to be a, a big bowl of fish too but i noticed like as i was watching your youtube channel and looking at your website you have a lot of pictures of you doing in hand work and so forth with horses and so i just wanted to ask you about your feelings on the the transition or the relationship between groundwork in hand work and riding work and how that that sort of flows for you typically. And, and I guess well, the, when I say typically, I mean not in a rehab sense, in, in more the ideal. I don't have a whole pile of mess to fix here. I'm, I've got a kind of a blank slate that I can just go forward with. Well, if I'm starting a cult, that's kind of going to be my process is I'll do all the basic groundwork stuff, make sure the, the lead rope's really connected to the feet, make sure that, you know, we can do our basics of 
ground stuff. Um, and then I'm going to start going into straightening and in hand uh, strengthening exercises. So by the time I ride them, they're already pretty well prepared and their backs move pretty well. And they're as strong as you can expect a young horse to be before riding. I, I think it flows pretty well though, because I've already got a pretty good deal with them learning how to use their body. Well, they already can carry a saddle while keeping their back loose. They can already understand how the bit works and what it's supposed to do. They're not tight about any of that stuff. Um, and then by the time I get to riding them, I basically just start out riding the same movements that they would be doing in hands. Actually, my favorite way to do this, and this is not going to impress any cowboys, but my favorite way to do this is to have either me up there or somebody up there while doing in hand. So they're basically just carrying me and I'm on for this little pony ride. And they're basically learning how to carry the weight in the same postures that they are doing in hand. And then after that, I'll slowly take up the reins and, and ride solo. And they'll kind of learn how to do that with my aides asking them to do that. But the the introduction is a lot more slow and gradual than the way I used to do it, which is just hop on yeehaw on the round pen. And not to say that I didn't love doing that and getting to feel super cool and like who doesn't want to be a cowgirl? I really want to be a cowgirl. But um, so there's no disrespect to any of that process. But um, the way that I do it now is a lot more boring and it is less impressive to anyone watching. But it to me produces a better quality of movement faster. There's less tension to fix later. And then how would you describe connection with a horse? What does connection with a horse mean to you? And I guess I'm, I'm backing up here all the way to the how you pet them and, and so on and, and so forth. So, so what's your unicorn relationship here? Connection to me is a horse engaging, understanding, and enjoying each method of communication from the second I touch him to put the halter onto the second and I let him go. So we're having a dynamic step-for-step conversation that is different every second. It's not as simple as pick up each rein and hold and wait for the horse to accept and just kind of learn that that's what you go through. Um, that's a dead conversation. To me, connection is is 100% presence from the rider's part and you know presence from the horse's part. Well, I agree with that completely. I am, as a clinician and trying to explain things, one of the biggest problems I face is that so much happens second to second to second with the horse that there's no way you can verbalize and explain how this just changed 10 times in three seconds. <laughs> yeah. I'm really enjoying, I'm starting to do the video coaching stuff, which I know you do as well. Uh, and I have a program that allows me to, to slow it down and back it up and circle stuff and all that kind of stuff. And I, I really like the potential of that where you can, you know, oh, let's back up, see what his ears did right here and, and so forth and, and kind of break it down in, in real time a little bit more where as it's actually happening, there's no way you can yeah. count how many things just occurred. You've got two books out. Your newest book is The Middle Road. Why don't you tell us about that? And I, am I incorrect? I thought that that had just come out. Is it? Is it that new? It just came it? out. Yeah, okay. it's pretty new. So <laughs> I think when I wrote To Catch a Horse, it was a desperate plea for people to think I know what I'm doing. And the middle road is an admission that I do not, in fact, know what I'm doing. 
So that's what I think of it as. Um, the middle road is basically just a bunch of stories of the disastrous, messy, cool, interesting stuff that has gone on in the midst of my career and development as a horse person. So I think everybody who's got to catch a horse in their house should mail it back to me. I'm buying them back like a government gun buyback program. Um, please do not read that book. <laughs> There's no way you can be as as uh, diverse there as Boucher was, right? So, I mean, hey. <laughs> oh. so yeah, the middle road is just basically, I it's like kind of sending out my diary into the world. I mean, it's a little squirmy but I'm proud of it yeah. and also real squirmy about it. So like, read it, but don't really read it. Tell me how you feel. I don't want to know, you know. <laughs> well, I look forward to reading it. I, I certainly do. Um, I've just gotten started on to catch a horse. So I, I will, I will grain of salt that one. And, um, but I think the ability to be vulnerable and be human is, is a big part of your ability to connect with people. So when you kind of uh, are on this pedestal on high, I don't think people kind of like my my uh, idea for this podcast is for things to be more candid. I, I think when you have that sort of relationship, it changes to a much more formal tone and a whole lot of things don't get said that might have needed to be said in order for us to really yeah, yeah. You know, kind of like well, the gosh thing of outside rain and inside the nobody knows what the hell they're talking about but nobody will speak up and well just act like right. oh, that makes total sense what did he say but you know that i think the good fortune and bad fortune i've had in my career is i've had really bad experiences with the pedestal type teachers and so it's brought me really quick awareness to how poorly that can make someone feel and so i as a teacher i've never wanted to First of all, I don't, I don't know enough to be on any pedestal. It's too exhausting to pretend to know everything. And it's just not a good teacher student dynamic to have. So. I agree. I, I really view like, like the relationship riding a horse to me is a very intimate one. When, when you've had that sort of connection and, and 45 minutes a day for several months and so forth, I, I really feel like I know a lot of these horses better than I know people I've known for, for years. Yeah. And the, the teacher-student relationship should be equally intimate. They should be able to say embarrassing and insecure sort of things to the teacher, and the teacher should handle that in confidence and then give them the reassurance or the whatever they need to kind of get them back on track. And um, I'm not a big holding people's hands and then that kind of a thing sort of a person but there, there definitely has to be a level of, of trust and intimacy between teacher student there, or it's what you get out of. It's going to be very limited. I think. Yeah. I mean, I think I probably know a lot of my students better than their own family does just because of the type of work that we do together. I mean, I see their horse, I see them, I see them in their most vulnerable, scary times. I know what they're going through. I know. I mean, sometimes they don't even have to say a lot about themselves you can just see it. So it is a very, open it needs to be an open relationship anyway and if you're on a pedestal then you can't really be that kind of open with them so what other projects i know you've got some pretty cool things coming up for 2022 why don't you tell us about some of those well 
I've been trying to work on a video library. So my goal is to kind of get together some videos of in hand work and how that progression works and what really writing with your seat looks like and stuff like that and put that on a video. Cause I think that's really important information to get out there. What other projects do I have? I'm working on my next book. Um, that'll probably take me probably into 2023, but it's in progress. As, can't think as of much them. writing as you do on your Facebook page. I don't know how you get any writing done in the book or do you use that to fuel what sometimes other like my first my first book was a lot of Facebook posts kind of put together. My second book was some, but most of it was exclusively for the book. I don't know. I just writing is really easy for me. It just kind of comes out. Doesn't really take me any time. I don't have to really sit down and think it up. And if I do have to sit down and think it up, it's just not really going to work out. So it's just whenever it hits me in spurts, I write it down. My life used to be like that. And then I had kids and now I'm every 15 seconds, someone says dad and my whole little black, yeah. what I was trying to get on the page just got <laughs> wiped clean. And now I have to refigure out what I was saying. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, most of my writing happens when I'm out working a horse. I'll be like in the middle of doing something and I'll have to stop, sit on the fence and write down something in my phone. Because once I get inside, I've got a kid climbing up my body like a monk, like a gorilla on a tower, you know, like King Kong. Don't you have a clinic coming up, a, a collaborative type? Oh, of yeah. Yeah, so I've got a collaborative clinic with Jack Ballou and Katrin Silva. I've got three of them this year. One of them's in New Mexico. One of them's in California. One's going to be in North Carolina. Um, that's going to be really fun. I think I'm really looking forward to that. Those are two really well-educated, really cool girls. Well, they're women, they're ladies, they're not girls. <laughs> that's about all I have written down. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or, or have a, is there a, a big hole here that I've skipped that well, I was unaware of? Or? We haven't really talked about my dog yet. I mean, she's like awesome, perfect, well-behaved. She does not grab tails, never has, never will, never does anything wrong. Everyone adores her. She's the epitome of well-behaved blue. <laughs> <laughs> she understands sarcasm pretty well, speaks that fluently. Or... Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so do you have a trick as to how to best throw a bridle at the dog so that the bit makes contact rather than the middle or anything because <laughs> there's a certain balance there it's like a slingshot i mean it's a perfect flinging for chef so to, my know, dog clean. actually is super obedient she will stop anything the second i tell her the problem is the minute the command is over she goes right back to it so the thing with my dog is she's just high octane and she wants to have me tell her what to do all day long. And if I don't tell her what to do, she goes and gets into trouble. She's got a thing for hoses. So every hose on my property that's connected to the spigot is just like ripped to shreds. She go and grab it and just tear it up. We have a, a cat epidemic out here. My wife is a, <laughs> a cat lady. And so we've got a pile of barn cats that is growing all the time. And I'm not a cat person, but several of them apparently think I like them. And they come oh, no. visit me when I'm out in the arena and the round pen all the time. And I'm having, I'm working a horse and all of a sudden, I'm, Oh crap. I got to go shoo a cat out of here before it gets run over and killed. Oh yeah. I've got one that has tried to, to climb. Of course I didn't catch that on camera. I mean, that could have been a career making. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, barn cats have almost ended my life. I remember 
remember one time I was riding this Frisian quarter horse cross colt who might have been the best bucker I have ever sat on. And a barn cat jumped down from the rafters in the indoor onto his butt. Cat went down, horse went up, and I swear I could have reached out and grabbed a rafter. And I cannot believe I stuck that. It is not through, like, it was just luck. I am not a good bronc rider by any means. Well, that does remind me of a question I was going to ask you. So, so you, you're writing a book on gnarly horse tails. Would you share some interesting happening with us now or about in my book or, or something that's not in there that's fine just just i mean uh the horse the horse life tends to bring about many many uh near-death experiences and good tales for later they're usually not a lot of fun when you're in the middle of them but when you can breathe a sigh of relief then they're fun to talk about later Ooh, let me think about that i've had a lot of wrecks actually a lot of the reason that I spend so much time doing in handwork now is because of a lot of the wrecks that I've had. I can, I can remember one time I was uh, interning with one of my earliest teachers and I was riding her horse. And at the time I used to um, carry my McCarty rein in my belt loop. And I had just set it just, just so that the loop was long enough that the tail was about the same length. You know what I'm talking about? The tail and the loop were the same length. So um, I had her horse up on a pedestal. I put his front feet up on the pedestal and on his way down, he tripped and fell. So of course I rolled off and I was on the ground, still connected by my McCarty rein. He got up and spooked at me being attached to him in that way and bolted and was basically running around the arena and my McCarty got stuck. So I'm basically being drugged and hitting every fence post around the arena. And I finally got it untied while being drugged and got loose. He stopped. I got back on and my teacher didn't see a thing. Turned around. She goes, why are you down there? <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding? Did you not see that? Get a drink thing? Quick, <laughs> I was just like, I just shit my pants. So I'll be right back. I've got to go get some new clothes. <laughs> It was just like, I, I'm not one of those people that panics in a near death situation. I've had enough of them to know that I am very clear of mind, but after they happen, I get the shakes and I'm like, I need a moment. To me, that's, that's a good correlation for people that are dealing with, with horses that go to fight or flight really easily. Absolutely. Uh, if, if you have gone through enough of that stuff that you're now the kind of person that can kind of walk through the fire without flinching then then it gives you an empathy for what has to happen to the horse and it isn't babying them it's you know you got to be willing to to do the push until until it doesn't elicit that response anymore i often think yeah, a lot of that's... people are just too damn timid uh to ever get the problem solved you know so i'm, I'm actually i'm really good in a near-death situation if you are in one you want me in there I've been in a lot and I can keep a clear head the whole time. And I actually get really annoyed by screaming around me. Like the, the, the thing that I think about when I'm in a near death situation is will everybody just please shut up. I am trying to save our lives. <laughs> That's not to say that once we get through it, I am not sitting there with messy pants and like shaking, okay. but, but in the middle of it, I can think very clearly. I didn't ask you about your dog. You want to talk about your daughter, Annie or husband or, any of that kind of stuff or the summit or anything like that? Well, my husband's a really talented artist. I don't know if you've seen any of his art. He's, he's into some real, 
he's into some real nerdy stuff and like he's real into metal so he draws some like i don't like orcs ripping each other's guts out or whatever like it's just like okay <laughs> it always makes me laugh because he's the most sweet peaceful person he's this big muscular like retired army brawny guy mm-hmm. but he's like baby talking my daughter bouncing him on his knee listening to death metal and drawing people ripping each other's innards out i mean he the man is like <laughs> well, he falls asleep he's sunk with lord of the rings in the background so i mean that that lends itself to certain <laughs> but he also can do like the most beautiful heartfelt portraits of like women and their horses and like you know all this like lovey-dovey stuff so he's just i think he's cool um, and my daughter is basically like my healer short of ripping up my hoses she is high octane as well and between the two of them sometimes they both have this thing going where if my daughter gets excited my healer gets excited so i can't figure out who to yell at fast enough mm-hmm. you know like it, it'll trigger my healer and she'll spin around and go out and bite something and my kids like climbing the walls and it's nope. a hot mess in my house is what i'm trying to say we have a border collie and my youngest one colt is nine and, and they're like that they're like two brothers that are just messing with one another and constantly in a, uh, in a problem. My daughter was basically raised by wolves. <laughs> oh, <cool. laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we will, we'll leave it there. And I certainly appreciate you coming on the podcast. I hope it was a little bit of fun and it didn't, uh, didn't make you too nervous or anything. And we covered a bunch of stuff right there. We'll certainly have, in the description of the show notes and everything, we'll have links to your Facebook page and your website. And uh, I don't, do you have Instagram or Twitter or any of that other kind of stuff or, you know, I have an Instagram, but I'm real bad at it. There's too many butts on there. I don't really get on Instagram a whole lot. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised by some of the messages you get and that kind of stuff through there. I'm terrified to have my kids on there. I delete 80% <laughs> of the messages that you get. Cause it's just, the worst is when you like have a high school friend and you get on Instagram and you find them and you're like, oh, whoa, okay. I'm <laughs> going to unfollow you there. <laughs> uh, well. Nice to see you again, Stacy. Here's a shirt. You might like a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody gets to be their own flavor of ice cream, right? So, yeah. Yep. Some of us are fruity pebbles. <laughs> Well, I certainly appreciate you coming on. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk with you somewhere down the road, too. So It was fun. Thanks for having me. Yes, ma'am. Take care. (laughs) We'll see you next week for another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I've been your host, Daniel Dolphin.